0: Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroder's. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it.
1: This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, we have a FA Cup treat for you this week. Simon Hallett is the guest on the pod. Simon has been in finance for over 40 years and was a fund manager and the CIO of asset manager Harding Lovner for 30 years. Much of his career was spent outside the UK, but in 2019 he decided to reconnect with his homeland by investing in Plymouth Argyle Football Club, who are currently in the third tier of English football, League One. In this episode, Andy Evans and friend of the pod, Joe Wiggins, discuss with Simon how he brings decision-making processes and approaches to behavioral biases that he used in asset management to English football. You can also catch Plymouth Argyle in their match against Chelsea on February 5th. Enjoy.
0: Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much for having me. It's good to be here.
0: We've also got a uh, special guest um, questioner with us. That's Joe Wiggins. So he's actually been a guest on the show previously. Um, so it's great he can come and join us and ask the questions as well. So welcome back to the show, Joe. Thanks, Andy. Pleasure to be on the other side of the microphone. Yeah. So, Simon, maybe may we can start. You know, this podcast series has really been about uh, decision-making in different walks of life, away from investing. And obviously speaking to you, we're actually turning it on its head a bit. So you've had a career in investing. Um, you spent your whole time in the world of investing. But actually, you're looking at what you've learned from investing and applying it to another um, area of life, which is football, as the owner of uh, Plymouth Argyle. So, I, I guess my, my question is, Joe, you know, how do you get involved with football and Plymouth Argyle, and what do you think you can take from investing and uh, benefit Plymouth Argyle as a football team? Uh,
2: sure. Yeah. Thank. thank thanks, Andrew. Um, the, the involvement is that uh, I grew up in Plymouth and left at the age of eighteen when I went off to university. I've been an Argyle fan since I first moved to Plymouth in 1966. Uh, I saw my first game in September of that year. Um, so roll on half a century or so, uh, five or six years ago, I thought that there may be some way I could help Argyle. Uh, I caught up, I became a minor, minor shareholder, and I've gradually been sucked into great, greater ownership. So essentially, I'm, I'm an Argyle fan and uh, have been for most of my life. Um, I, I think the biggest thing you can take from investing to any activity is about decision making, about the biases that afflict our decision making, and its importance in almost any walk of life, very much the subject of your series of podcasts. Um, the biases that we know about in investing are particularly prevalent, of course, in activities where luck and skill contribute to outcomes. Um, over the years, football clubs, I think, you know, judging by the number that go bust, have not been terribly well managed. I think they haven't had a goal of creating shareholder value. So maybe that's one of the reasons why they have tended to lack the discipline that um, uh, the goal of shareholder value creation can provide, uh, which of course you know, when, when it's well implemented is what we're looking for when we seek to uh, invest in individual companies. That actually isn't my goal with Argyle. I, I don't think of it as a business, but I do want it to be business-like so we can maximise the outcomes on the pitch for every pound we spend. So what I can take is what I know about structuring processes to improve decision-making. I've been very, very clear with the uh, football side of the club that if I start giving my opinion about 4-3-3, three, three, five at the back, two up front, they can pat me on the head and say, thank you, Mr. Chairman. But if I say uh, that you know, we need to improve our decision-making in certain areas, then I expect them to listen to me.
1: Football and investing both have elements of luck and skill, as you mentioned, but probably sit at different points on that spectrum. So different mm. amounts of luck and skill in, in each activity. And How do you think they differ in that regard? And, and how do you adjust your decision making approach to take account of that?
2: Yeah, um, they're definitely at different points, but I don't think those points are terribly far apart. It probably depends on your time frame. So football has an outcome once a week whereas investing is obviously a more continuous process. Maybe we should just check our portfolios once a week, um, in which case I think we'd see more randomness in portfolio results than even in, in football. Um, so I, I think the similarities are much more important than the differences. You know, they both suffer in particular from uh, resulting, or what Annie Duke calls resulting, um, which is judging the quality of a decision by its outcome. They both suffer from patent seeking, seeing causes where there's just randomness. Uh, they suffer from extrapolating from very small um, amounts of data. And I think it all adds up to um, an inability to make decisions that would benefit outcomes in the long run. So, you know, the, the other main thing is that in investing, we recognize that a portfolio is different from a collection of individual securities. You know, there are there are interaction effects that can reduce risk for a given amount of expected return. And it's very much the same when you're recruiting for a football team. If you simply went out and bought a squad of cheap players, you'd end up with nothing but goalkeepers. Goalkeepers tend to be systematically underpriced relative to their contribution to results. So the big difference, I think, is that running a football team is much more like being an activist as opposed to just an active investor. So you select your playing squad to fit your playing philosophy and you then try to coach constant improvement. I think that that's, that that's really the kind of similarities and differences.
1: Great, thank you. And One area I spend probably too much time thinking about in investing is, is time horizon yeah. and trying to encourage long-term thinking. And similar to investment as well, you have, in football you have lots of competing time horizons. So you as an owner, we think about the long-term health of the club on five, ten, maybe more, uh, the year view manager, a few seasons, maybe less uh, before they get the sack, players thinking about individual seasons, fans thinking about the next game. So you've got all these, this confluence of competing time horizons and the owners will be very different potentially to the ones used by fans or, or players. How do you manage that conflict in, in football and how consistent is it with the, the challenges of managing client expectations and, and long-term investment yeah. outcomes?
2: Yeah, uh, well, f- firstly, I'm both a fan and an owner. So I suffer, <laughs> I suffer both you know, caring about what's happening on Saturday and as an owner feeling responsible for what happens on Saturday. So the, the kind of conflict between the short and the long term are even worse, actually, when you're an owner. And I think the evidence is that too few owners uh, do think about the long term, that they, they act much more as, as fans. But the, the simple answer, Joe, is, you know, it's by constant exaltation. Um, which really means constantly trying to communicate with your client base, with your supporters in the case of football. So what we've done at Argyle, we've published, uh, and it's available on our website, our kind of vision, our values. Uh, We've talked at length about our strategic goals and our long-term, by which we meant five-year mission, which has been to be a sustainable club in the second tier of English football, the championship. So our fans realise that it's a long-term project, now, the big difference is, of course, that we've been winning in the short term, and th- this again is very, very similar to running an investment business. So, you know, my firm has a very good long-term track record. We have a brand that's very closely associated with thoughtfulness, with integrity, with long-term thinking, and our clients all understand that we accept the inevitability of periods of underperformance, pursuit of good long-term returns. Yet. We tend to lose assets when short-term performance is poor, and I, I'm sure it's going to be the same with football. So that 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 that's the customers. It, it's constant constant exhortation, but I'm not confident that it's that it's going to work when it comes to the decision makers, whether it be a portfolio manager or a football manager. I think one thing that you know senior management ownership can give is that they are secure that they won't lose their job because of short-term outcomes. And at Argyle, this is particularly important because a large part of our long-term strategy depends upon our successfully running our academy and getting young players into the first team. Um, Football managers tend not to like to risk putting in young, young and inexperienced players, despite overwhelming evidence that the net impact, even in the short term, of doing so is trivial but the long-term opportunity cost of not giving a chance to young players is very high. So, you know, in in behavioral terms, it's a a good example of how people undervalue opportunity costs and how acts are considered worse than omissions. So, you know, one one thing we've done is that we we actually have a new manager as of um, actually less than a week ago. Um, He's just 37 years old. He's in his first managerial job, but we gave him a three and a half year contract. So he's got plenty of job security, and of course we've given ourselves a financial incentive to stick with him even when the going gets tough.
1: And how do you think fans have reacted to setting out a long-term strategy? And when you make long-term decisions like the one you just mentioned with the new manager, do you do you check message boards to see what the reactions of fans has been to that type of choice?
2: Yeah, we have people at the club who check message boards more systematically than I do, but I tend to look around. But again you know it it really comes back it's the same in investing. your clients all want you to take a long term view. Um, they all admire you for having taken a long term view in the past. yet when the going gets tough, you tend to lose assets you, you know you, you know what i mean, I think everybody probably most people listening to this podcast know that know what it's like that um clients of investment managers these days i think are sophisticated enough to know that they should not take assets away from managers after a period of short term underperformance, yet they still do, so you know we 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 never get fired for bad short term performance, but when short term performance is bad, we tend to get fired um, so I think it would be the same in football that as much as they respond positively to our thinking about the long term to our taking the resources we have and uh, putting them towards you know the long term future of the club through investment in the academy through investment in our infrastructure that um if short term results turn sour uh, we'll 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 suffer from from that in terms of lower attendances and in terms of a kind of less favorable opinion of the way we're managing the club
0: one thing we found and um you know this is true in the investing industry but but also you know this has come out in the podcast series as well that it's kind of quite easy to identify behavioural biases, but it's often quite difficult to put it into practice. I, I guess the question for you is, you know, how do you actually put these um, good decision making into practice? How do you create a good decision making environment at a football club?
2: Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Andrew. And I've, I've been very uh, careful to, whenever I talk about uh, behavioural finance, about you know, cognitive biases in public, I'm very clear to say that there's nothing we know at Hardy-Lovner that's not freely available from, you know, listening to podcasts such as, the one, such as this one, from reading the books written by the people who appear on these podcasts. We, we know nothing that is not freely available or, or at least available at very low cost. But what, where we've been successful at the investment firm is by putting it into practice over the last 25, 30 years. So your competitive edge uh, comes not from what you know about decision-making, but about whether you can put it into practice. And I think it, it's very clear to me that the, the parallels are tremendous here, that you know, it's taken me 20 years as chief investment officer at Harding and Lovner, it took me, I'm no longer a chief investment officer, but it took me 20 years to improve our decision-making processes gradually. Uh, I think they can still be improved. They, that That is also a continuous process. But I didn't start that project with a clear idea of how the investment process would end up. You know, I learned, we learned as we went along, we learned what worked, what people would accept, what people resisted. Uh, but in the case of the football club, we've taken what I've learned, what we've learned from the investment firm, and we've already created broad structures that look a lot like an investment process. So we've defined our football philosophy. We play quickly through the thirds. We play on the ground. We play attacking football where, you know, we accept that we're going to concede goals because of the space we're creating at the back. We then create um, data that uh, describes the attributes of each playing position. We screen candidates for further research. Uh, We then build a portfolio of the candidates that we've identified. It's very, very similar to, almost any bottom-up investment process that starts with an investment universe um, and ends up via doing company research with a portfolio of stocks. A big difference between football and investing is that in football, there's no model for valuing players. We only see prices. At least in investing, we have a broad model and subject to flaws, but, you know, most Bottom-up investors, at least, believe that a company is worth the net present value of its cash flows, and you know we kind of have a at least a broad understanding of the kind of discount rate that we should be using to discount those cash flows. It's not the case in football. There's no concept of the uh, actual underlying value, the cash flows that <laughs> a player can generate. They're just beginning to be the first inklings of some way of thinking about it, but it's really, really in a very naive state at the moment. And that's a specific case of a more general issue. You know, football tends to be run by, in quotation marks, proper football people. Um, There seems to be very little by way of um, an economic way of thinking. And I don't mean thinking about macro or even microeconomics. I mean thinking in terms of models, for example. Um, You know, a good example is that when I was first on the um, Argyle board, I was asked what model we use to forecast attendances for budget purposes. And I was literally told this is football, Simon, we don't do models. But you know, when I asked if the weather was relevant, I was told, yes, if I, you know, when I asked if recent results mattered, they said, yes. If I said, does it matter who your opponent is? They said, yes. So, you know, they did have a model. They just didn't write it down. And, uh, I think, you know, that when you're trying to develop processes that, you know, writing down, <laughs> writing down the source of your you know, gut instincts, your pattern recognition is actually very valuable. And that's, again, something that we tried to do at Argyle.
0: Just to follow up on that, there's a, a, a situation and you mentioned it before that with football, there's a, a real issue um, with resulting and, and very much a focus on outcome. So um, now you put a, a good process in place. How do you encourage people to think in terms of process over
2: outcome? Well, just through constant exaltation. And um, I I actually behave very similarly with our manager as I used to behave with portfolio managers. That, you know, when they're having very good short-term performance, I'd remind them that, you know, short-term is driven by luck. And when they're having very bad performance over the short-term, I'd remind them of the same. And it's the same with our manager. You know, I tried to look at the data uh, immediately after a game and try to say, you know, we got lucky, we got unlucky. I thought we played well, though. I'm not a very good judge of that. And, you know, just really constant encouragement. The problem is in both football and portfolio management that you're overcoming, uh, you know, generations of culture. And the culture in both football and portfolio management has been in the past about, you know, great men and the influence, and of course, it's always great men, not women um about you know individual geniuses I and mean, you know you i i come from an investing background in the uk originally you know i started in london in the late 70s where the successful everybody knew who the successful investors were and they tend to be idolized uh, it's the same it's the same in football um we tend to overestimate the impact of uh managers in the same way that i think we tend to overestimate the importance of portfolio managers and underestimate the importance of structure process and discipline and you know one of the reasons is that people simply don't like their freedom curtailed you know we we can see this uh, in you know trying to get people to wear masks when you know they look upon it as an infringement of their liberty you know one one of the things about having structure and process and overcoming biases is that you're restricting people's autonomy And, you know, I think it's a constant process and continuous process of education and exhortation in order to get them to accept that. But it's hard. It's very, very hard, which is why the competitive edge comes from, you know, being able to put the theory into practice, I think.
1: Absolutely. And just to bring your decision making principles within football to life, you mentioned that you've recently changed manager or, or coach for the US listeners. Uh, for Plymouth Can you talk through that decision making process and how you went about identifying uh, the best person for that job?
2: Well, our recent change of manager was actually not at our behest. He, um, he left us rather, rather suddenly to take uh, what he thought was a much better job. But so to, really, to answer your question, Joe, it's probably best to go back to the only time we've gone through a proper process to hire a manager, which was two and a half years ago when we hired Ryan Lowe, who's just left us um, again. We went through a process that was very similar to the one that we use at Harding-Lovner to assess whether companies meet our investment criteria. We, we had a list of criteria, um, some, some that a manager must not have, some that he must not have too many of, some that he must have quite a few of, and some that he must have. Um, important to us were such criteria as being prepared to embrace the use of data uh, we wanted a manager who would treat, treat players uh, huma- humanely. I, mean, I, can re- I can see the picture in the spreadsheet. It actually said treats players like humans, um, which sounds ridiculous, but is unusual in football quite often. We wanted a manager who could relate well both to uh, fans and to the media uh, and also to our sponsors. Uh, he had to have uh, ne- uh, amongst the necessary ones were minimum Uh, level of coaching qualifications and much more judgmental. We wanted somebody who was forward thinking, who was open to new ideas and willing to to, uh, learn. We actually added the Rooney rule, which is um, a rule designed to help overcome uh, biases, you know, racial or gender biases. Uh, We had over 50 candidates. We scored them on all these criteria, got down to a short list of five, uh, one took another job. One was completely unacceptable, showing the variability in even a systematic process. And we'd have been happy with any of the other three. Um, the one that we eventually hired blew us away with his presentation, which I kind of look back on as thinking that was probably very bad process. Uh, we should have been more objective. But really, we, we got it down very objectively in a very structured way to three. And, you know, arguably, um, any of those three would have provided. The good outcome that our eventual choice made having done that we then put in place a succession plan a part of our kind of risk risk management uh process structure um when uh when the manager ryan lowe decided to take a better job or what he thinks is a better job we'll see um that risk management plan kicked in and we offered the job to um his assistant Stephen schumacher uh, for various reasons, we hadn't been able to inform him that that was the plan um, beforehand. So we had to give him a few hours to decide well, whether he wanted to accept the job offer. Um, otherwise, it would have been extremely seamless. But it, it took you know, it took us um, all in all about 24 hours to implement. So very, very good. Well, we'll see whether Stephen ends up being a very good manager. I Obviously, am confident he will. But in terms of process, it was a very, very structured, very disciplined one that um, our fans have actually uh, responded to well.
0: Thanks very much. That's really interesting. Um, You've touched on this a couple of times already, um, and that's the the data side um, of football. So obviously, as with investing, lots of data available um, for for you in football. And you've obviously referred to people being quite slow to adapt uh, to models and think about the world in a slightly different way from the old school way of thinking about football but we know that there are clubs out there who are obviously focusing on a moneyball style analytics approach, um, to, to data. So could, could maybe if could you touch on, um, you know, how you've approached data and how you want to bring that forward to the fore at Plymouth. Um, and I guess tied to, to that, is that how do you identify the right players using that sort of structure?
2: Well, again, very, very similar to investing. So, I mean, at Plymouth, we, at Argar, not allowed to call us Plymouth, um, at Argar, we, um, we have said that we are going to become a data-driven company when it comes to recruiting. We're going to be more objective about assessing opposition, you know, and we're going to be more objective about assessing our own results. So we're slowly introducing the, the use of data into Argyle. And actually, our last recruiting season was very successful, partly because it was the first one where you know, the use of data was completely uh, embraced. As I said before, I look upon how you recruit um, being very similar to how you select stocks for your investment process or for the research part of your investment process. Um, you know, people forget that the money ball approach to recruiting, as um, you know, Michael Lewis described was happening at the Oakland A's under Billy Bean, the general manager, was about overcoming biases and exploiting other people's biases to acquire underpriced players. It's very similar to investing where, You know i'm an active investor i think we're all active investors and active investors believe that markets are modestly inefficient i believe that those inefficiencies are at least in part caused by behavioral biases they're much more prevalent in football though i mean and thank goodness um it means that at argyle we'll be able to compete effectively by being smarter not by spending more money on the squad so you know we thought about this a lot and it's really been the area where, you know, I've insisted as owner that, you know, this is the one thing I know about. This is the one thing that I know will work. And, um, it's the one thing that I insist we do at the club. So, uh, it's, we've begun that journey. And, uh, so far, so far it's worked out that the football side, which tends to be the most resistant to embracing objective data, not relying on their instincts. Uh, are now, uh, are now on board and, you know, we're making quite a lot of progress. I think I have to say though, that again, people like to see good examples in action. And the fact that Brentford, who uh, amongst lower league clubs were the first and the most aggressive to introduce, uh, at least in part, a, what we'll loosely call a money ball approach to recruitment. I think Brentford would say that that was only part of it. And so would I, by the way. Um, that you know they they're now playing in the Premier League, competing fairly effectively in the Premier League, and it's been, you know, a remarkable uh, uh, progression for them. And I think that that helps persuade people that this is the right way of going about things.
1: In investing, we, when we talk about edges or advantages that, that certain investors hold, um, the, the obvious question or rebuttal is always, well, that edge will just be competed away. Yeah. So, so we think about data and analytics in football. Are we at a stage where? it's still new and still an edge or advantage to look at make decisions through that lens or is it a case where it's so widespread now that it's just, you have to do it because everybody else is.
2: No, I think, I think people are paying lip service to it because everybody else is. So, you know, most clubs have a data analyst or they have at least, maybe even a data analytic team, including in the lower leagues, but um, data analysts, at least in the lower leagues, tend to be people who kind of chop up the video for the manager to look at on a Sunday or a Monday um, after, after every game and produce video for uh, the next game. Uh, they're not data analysts as you know, we would understand them, or not always. Uh, and actually at Argyle, we use an outside service in addition to having two data analysts on staff, um, but we use an outside service to help us with it. I I think that it takes decades for these things to be um, arbitraged away, these inefficiencies to be arbitraged away. You know, I, there's a very good um, uh, panel at the Sloan Sports uh, Conference that they have at MIT where Richard Thaler introdu- um, interviews Bill James and I think a couple of um, GMs, general managers from uh, basketball. And he asks the question, you know, why, does it, why did it take so long for the three-point shot to become so popular. And, you know, the three-point shot, actually, I think just yesterday, Stephen Curry from the Golden State Warriors became the uh, NBA's highest ever scorer of three-point shots. But we knew 30 years ago that, you know, the expected return from a three-point shot was greater than the expected return from a two-point shot. You know, and we've known for 20, 20 years, I think, Michael Lewis's Moneyball book came out basically outlining how the Oakland A's managed. And at the time, everybody said that's not that can't happen in basketball, then it happened in basketball, people said it can't happen in soccer. And it's already begun to happen in soccer, That the most successful soccer clubs, I think Liverpool, being a very good example of of a wealthy club, but also Brentford had a less, less wealthy club, if they don't mind me referring to them as such. Um, have demonstrated that this approach works but it takes it takes decades for this uh, inefficiency to be arbitraged away which which doesn't mean that you don't need you know constantly to or continuously to try to improve your decision making processes i think it's the same i think it's the same in investing you know i've often observed you know i, I assert it myself i know nothing that is not freely available you can get the complete works of Michael Moberson for fifty bucks, and frankly, you don't need much else. But turning it into into practice is what's so difficult. You're overcoming human biases. Actually, I think um, we we've seen we've seen recently that even the elite clubs can make decisions based on limited data sets, extrapolating. You know the 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 recent well, both the uh, signing and the sacking at you know Manchester United one of their manager. Um, were examples of, I think it's fair to say, of poor, poor decision-making processes because we can identify the biases that they were, they were, uh, that that were acting upon them when they made that that decision, both to give a long-term contract to Olegana and to eventually fire him
0: Yeah, we we, uh, we definitely discussed that on the, the podcast um, that myself oh. and Joe did uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, great, um, great, great example.
0: Yeah. Um, d- just tied in with, um, with, with this process and data, how does the academy come into it? Because I think that that's slightly different from investing. You don't have your, you can grow your own stocks um, in, in your own backyard. So yeah. it, it, in some ways it, it changes the framework a bit. And obviously you need to have a very long term view uh, to see the, the benefits of that. So how, how do you think about um, the academy in, in that framework?
2: Well, I tried to justify it in terms of good decision-making and the kind of long-term future of Plymouth Argyle, but I'm a fan and I've spent a lot of money on Plymouth Argyle and I'm allowed to do a few things uh, because I'm a fan. And I think that uh, having an academy is fantastic for the club, it's fantastic for the fans, and it's fantastic for the community in which we operate. So, you know, Plymouth Argyle is the most southerly and the most westerly of all the clubs in English football, maybe even in Scottish football, certainly the most southerly. I think we might even be the most westerly of even the Scottish clubs. So we actually have quite a big catchment area in which we can compete. Historically, we've competed with Exeter City, um, you know, uh, uh, who play in League Two of the EFL and are just up the road from us. And they've got a very good academy. Um, But it's a big catchment area. We can have influence. We're investing in centers of excellence in Cornwall and in Devon. So there's part of me that says having an academy is good for my goal and one of Argyle's values, which is that we are a community focused club. Having said that, um, like all good investment people, I try to justify my priors by trying to be rational. And having an academy in an area where we're not not suffering too much competition does give us the opportunity to bring into the academy a lot of young talent from around the uh, region, which eventually basically lowers the cost of your first team squad. You know, the um, you can either go out and pay hundreds of thousands of pounds for a good striker or you can have, uh, in our case, a, a young man called Luke Jeffcott, who uh, came up through the academy and has been in our first team, scoring a lot of goals over the last 12, 15 months. And, you know, that has saved us money. It also enables us to build a financial model where we have a portfolio of players that have been sold on to you know clubs more willing to pay high fees for them. And eventually that will reduce the variability in what in football is called your fortune income. So when you're doing budgets in football, you, do, you know you, uh, you think about what you're going to get in terms of media payments, subsidies from the Premier League, attendance, uh, match day income, other kind of hospitality things. and then there's the role of complete chance, you know, how you do in the FA Cup, whether some some other club comes in and makes a bid for your player. Essentially, you can't budget for it. But if you have a portfolio of those um, revenue streams, then uh, the volatility of that income every year will go down. Um, so you can start to you know, put it into your budgets and you can start to think about where you're going to spend it. So that that's really the goal of the academy. It reduces the cost of your first-team squad and eventually, in the long term, will reduce the volatility of some of our cash flows. But it does require a manager who is prepared to take risks And, you know, that's why one of the criteria that we had for a manager when hiring was that he was prepared to uh, give young players a chance. So we monitor the number of minutes played in the first team squad in meaningful games by academy graduates. And we've seen a substantial increase. But that, and again, it comes back to them feeling that their long term future is tied in an industry where, um, you know, managerial tenure tends to be only a little over 12 months. It's it's inconsistent.
1: It feels like developing academy players and bringing on players from the local area is somewhere at the intersection between data analytics and, and narratives and stories yeah. that, that fans like to attach to. I'm interested in, in the role of narratives here because clearly the investment, as most bad investments come from a good story, and narratives yeah. dominate decision-making. Yeah. With football, fans want the narrative they want to be engaged in the narrative and you have to you have to foster that story because that's why they they enjoy the game and being a supporter so how do you how do you combine the the need for kind of cool-headed decision making and data and analytics and and those stories that the fans want to attach to
2: yeah well even in investing you know i I mean i think at one extreme we have you know the wall street or sell side notion of a story stock Mm. which i always kind of define as you know, the stock of a company that has no no merit other than the story. So, you know, we, we in investing at, at my firm, we try to distinguish between stories, which you need to communicate. They do have a value and, you know, analysts have to be able to communicate with each other and with portfolio managers, but um, we try to dis- distinguish stories from mere stories. So stories need to be backed up by fact, but you're absolutely right. This is the, this is why it's going to take so long for, proper use of data for proper um, anti-bias decision-making structures to catch on in football because football should be, I mean, all sport is about drama. All sport is about narrative. All sport is about, you know, arguing over, over a pint in the pub afterwards. You know, it's, I, I would hate if, uh, if all the drama was driven out of, uh, any of any sport, let, let alone you know, the one that I care about my, most, football. And it's it is interesting that um, in baseball, which is you know 30 years now into this uh, journey of increased use of data analytics, uh, you're starting to see some resistance from the fans. Um, you know, the fans are starting to say there's too much data being used. Uh, it's leading to some of the aesthetics of the game uh being lost and you know again you're you're really at the intersection here of poor decision making (laughs) aesthetics and analytics um i i honestly don't know the answer joe i i would hate for the narrative for the stories to be driven out of football uh and again you've got to remember that i'm a fan as well as an objective owner trying to create shareholder value in a company
1: Just to um, just to put my Gigarenza hat on for a second, how much do you value gut feel in decision making from your experience in football?
2: Very little. Um, uh, Now I think even Gigarenza would say that you know gut feel is something. It's essentially pattern recognition. So at this stage, what I'm trying is it's a bit like that story I told. Story I told about the uh, modelling of um, weekly attendances. You know, if your gut feel is that the attendances are going to be high let's disaggregate why, you know, let's let's try to disaggregate from your gut what the pattern that you're seeing is, and it's probably going to be something about a weather forecast, your recent results, your position in the league, who the opposition is. So I I kind of take the side that says that, you know, Gigarenza is right, but so is Kahneman. And, you know, gut, gut feel can in many cases be uh, disaggregated into... Uh, uh, aspects of a pattern that you recognize and that really should be identified and that you know that really is part of what I was talking about earlier that good processes good decision making processes and their adoption really lead to uh, restriction in people's autonomy you know you 're saying i'm i'm going to put an algorithm instead of gut feeling but we're going to derive that algorithm from you know how you come how you actually come to your decisions but we know that people suffer from algorithm aversion so it's not just restriction of freedom it's algorithm aversion but uh, uh no i i certainly at argyle we're at the stage where we kind of allow people to have their gut feels but we try constantly to have them say well what was it about him that that uh attracted you to to that player or or that made you think that you know we we, we played well even you know what was it what was it that uh led you to that gut feeling.
0: Thank you. So uh, Simon, this has been really uh, fascinating. We're, we're coming towards the end of our questions. So it's, it's now time for our, our two signature questions. So the, the first one is, um, and it's always the most difficult one. Uh, can you give us an example of a mistake in the past that you made, which has been down to poor process rather than just the outcome?
2: Yeah, um, I think, if you, if, first of all, forgive me, I'm gonna go back nearly 25 years. Um, but it was tremendously influential on, on how we structured our uh, investment process since then at Harding-Lovner. Um, in the late 90s, we had a bad year of performance after seven or eight years of doing well since our founding in 1989 and expanding our investment team. Uh, so 97, 98, we had a bad couple of years. We lost a lot of clients. It was threatening to our existence. Um, more relevant, it led to a lot of finger pointing and the kind of big first signs of a culture of blame, which, you know, I've always thought is one of the most damaging things you can have at an investment firm or any organization making decisions under conditions of uncertainty. So we realized that our investment process had completely failed us. Um, and we we it, it was a very old fashioned one, uh, consensus driven. And we decided that that was no longer adequate. So we took steps to remove the need for consensus at any stage of the investment process, increase individual accountability, and increase transparency. And we also realized that the team itself, which was largely made up of people we knew and trusted, who were our friends, uh, was inadequately diverse. As 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 you know, our friends tend to be people like ourselves. And we looked around, and we realised we were all of a similar age, similar gender, similar ethnicity, and so on, similar backgrounds. So we took steps to um, uh, diversify our, our decision making, as well as to disaggregate all stages of the investment process. We started started hiring strangers. Um, so really, it was a period when. The flaws in our entire process were laid bare. But it it coincided with the literature on decision making entering the popular domain. And we were able then to learn from what was coming into the popular domain and make changes to the process consistent with what the academics were telling us about, you know, how to structure good processes. And it's been gradual, but that really was the beginning of it. It was almost a complete failure of process.
0: Very interesting, and out of interest, how long did it take to turn that all the way around?
2: Still happening To, to build, right? Still, still happening. No, it's um, yeah, 25 years. Um, and it, yeah, no, it really is still happening. I'm you know, I'm no longer chief investment officer, but my uh successor is obviously uh up to date with the literature and so on. And I, you know, as you can tell, I love this stuff, so I spend a lot of my increased spare time reading about stuff and passing on to on, on to harding lovener's new cio
0: fascinating thank you um, and then our final one is uh, do you have any books uh, recommendations which you think we will would be worth us reading
2: i do um so robert carrow is a biographer who has written four enormous volumes uh and a fifth one i believe is coming out i hope next year Uh, which is a biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, So I think you're looking at 5,000 pages in total. I've read all of them twice. Uh, But to spare your listeners, I'll recommend the third volume, which is called Master of the Senate, which covers mostly the period from the mid-50s through the mid-60s. So it's a biography of LBJ, uh, who, of course, was the president who took over after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, It's really, though, a social and political history of the US in the first half of the 20th century. And it's absolutely wonderful at explaining how the aftermath of the Civil War led to very little improvement in the political and economic welfare of formerly enslaved people. Uh, It goes a long way to explaining why institutional racism has had and still has uh, a dreadful influence in the United States uh, it happens to be something that I care about. And interestingly, for behavioral finance people, it changed my mind about a lot of a lot of things um, in that in that do- domain, a uh, domain that I happen to uh, think about. So that that's a pretty heavy, pretty serious. It's actually superbly written. It reads it reads like a novel and it really the. The story of LBJ really is an extraordinary story, and I I would commend all four volumes, but I realise that may be being a little bit too optimistic. Um, on a lighter note, um, lighter when it comes to decision making, you know, I, it, it's it's probably the most popular one along with Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, but I really like Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. Uh, but you know, the topic today has been sports and decision making, and uh, by far the most fun book about that I think has been. The Success Equation by Michael Moberson.
0: Yeah, no, fantastic book. So thank you very much for those recommendations. Simon, so, mean, it just leaves me to thank you very much and I hope uh, Argyle have a good rest of the season.
2: Thanks very much. Thanks for your interest. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, well,
0: And thanks out. very much, Joe, for joining.
2: Yeah, thanks, Pleasure, Joe. Thank you.